You are listening to the Deep Energy Literacy Podcast, part of Just Powers, an interdisciplinary and community-engaged network of research projects focused on climate justice issues and socially just approaches to energy transition. I'm Dr. Sheena Wilson, and in this podcast, we explore the idea of deep energy literacy. In this first series, titled Deep Celerities, we begin by investigating questions, issues, challenges, and potentials of solar energy. Specifically, this series will shed light on a solar energy infrastructure project proposed for installation in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada on Treaty 6 territory. This solar project proposed by EPCOR, the municipal utility, for installation at their E.L. Smith water treatment plant has evoked a range of divergent and sometimes unanticipated responses and imaginaries as stakeholders speculate about what futures are possible and preferable at the intersections of energy futures, ecological futures, indigenous futures on land rights, feminist futures, municipal futures, and climate futures, to name but a few. Through a series of interviews that seek to explore these diverse perspectives, we examine both the perceived challenges and potentials of this energy transition project. Focused on deep energy literacy, we look to these conversations for insights into approaches and strategies that have the potential to disrupt power relations and create more just energy futures for all. In this interview, we had the pleasure of speaking with Cody Sharphead, an archaeologist and consultation coordinator with Enoch Cree Nation. In our conversation with Cody, we discussed the archaeological work that has been conducted on the proposed site of the EPCOR solar project, as well as Enoch Cree Nation's decision to withdraw its support. We also speak to Cody about some other important issues, including questions of land use and ownership, consultation procedures, and intergenerational climate justice. All right. So how long have you been working for Enoch Cree Nation? I've been employed but since April 2019, but I'm, I'm a member. So, you know, basically all my life. Right. You grew up there? <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to start by asking you how you came to learn about the solar project slated for the E.L. Smith Water Treatment Plant. Well, I first heard about the solar farm in a class that I was taking at the U of A. Um, and we were put in groups where we had to be either for or against the project, and I was put in a group that was against the project. So right away, I guess you can say I was already not supporting the project because there were issues that I felt weren't addressed by Stantec in their environmental impact assessment. So I when I was employed by Enoch in April, they were in support of the project, so I was kind of already wrestling with, um, I guess, my own my own thoughts on this on this project and how I felt Enoch shouldn't have been in support. So being a new employee, I felt I had to follow my employer's wishes. And so at some point, in, at, right after that first meeting with EPCOR, I was called from a, uh, one of our counselors and they felt that there were some issues that weren't addressed, especially when it came to the archaeological report. So that's kind of, uh, I guess, how I came into it and my background. Yeah, I find that really interesting. You know, there's so many different kinds of power dynamics we have to think through as we think about putting new uh, um, energy projects on the land. And then we also have to think about our own employment uh, relationships and all of those things. And I think those are things people are actually struggling with every day. And there's some of the things that, that, that come up for other people when we're talking to them, too, about how they 
are or are not in support of this project and why. So that's yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So when did the when did the ideas start to change um, at Enoch, and when did people start to recognize some red flags and want more investigation? What was what 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 attuned them to the fact there was something else going on here? Well, I imagine it started with me coming to the job and saying that there's probably more we should be looking at because um, I had friends working on the Stantec team who were digging at E.L. Smith. I had not, I have one friend and uh, two people who I went to field school with and another person who I worked with at another site. So there's at least four people on the crew that I knew. So I, I, had, I had an awareness of what they were finding and my my focus in a, re- in a research project right now that I'm working on is Cody Complex phase, which is a phase that's 9,000, 8,000 years ago. So I had a friend who told me that you're going to be very interested in what's happening at this site. So I kind of thought maybe he was finding Cody Complex stuff, stuff that is 8,000, 9,000 years old. But um, as it turns out, that wasn't the case. But it already opened my eyes to what was happening over there. So you're hired in April, and then... Um you go in front of city council in in uh, June. So, w- is there anything else that happens in between those two times? Uh, yeah, we didn't we didn't go in front of city council. Uh, Epcor and Stantec all went in front of the city council. Um, I guess what happened was there was a revelation that there might have been more that Stantec was releasing to us. Stantec and Epcor was releasing us more that was found at this archaeological site, and there was rumors going around that councilors got wind of. And so they kind of wanted to know, they wanted to know more about this site because what we got from Stantec, what Alberta Culture allowed them to to tell us wasn't enough. They told us, oh, we found some bison bones and, you know, we found this when in reality there was multiple bison skulls. So, you know, what Alberta Culture didn't allow Stantec to release to EPCOR, which and didn't allow EPCOR to release to us. It kind of started this whole thing to where it felt like something was being hidden because there's a 130-plus page report and we're getting a two-paragraph sheet of what was found. So interesting. So did you FOIP the materials or how did you how did you get your hands on the whole 130 pages? Oh, I, I already have a, a non-disclosure agreement with Alberta Culture, so I kind of just went in and asked for the report and... What we got was a report for a different, a previous excavation, but not the EL, the current one that we were, ta- we were talking about, basically. That is still being finalized. So nobody can really look at that until it's finalized, which it's, it's in the process of being right now. Right, because even that report by John Paul Foster indicates that it was probably a ceremonial site, but definitely a, a place where people were living or uh, had hearts. And that report was dated when? That report is before all of this begins then? We already actually knew that before all of this started? Yeah, in 2017 is that when that report happened for shovel testing, and then there was excavations that were done in 2018. Right. So when we're talking upstairs, it seemed like a slow progression of people having information revealed to them. But it's, it's tough to say what, I mean, what, why it's so hard to get information from Alberta culture, but it, it seems to stem from that. Right. For, from like the information gap, I guess, is just too wide between Alberta culture and any other type of, I guess, the people who need the information, the First Nations, the even, I guess, Stant- well, not Stantec, they knew it, but EPCOR, 
like if they're trying to engage or consult with First Nations on a meaningful level when they're not getting all the information that they need, it it already you know kind of uh, stumbles things from the from the block or the from starting blocks. Right, right. Excuse how things uh, take off. Yeah, no kidding. Okay. All right. And then you say you did not testify in June, but EPCOR and StanTech went and spoke. And then these this information is revealed. So were you working behind the scenes more talking to different people? Or I had seen your name in different reports and you were quoted. So I'm wondering how all of that happened. Well, we had I had been asked to, I, I guess I got interviewed for an article in The Sun. And that is kind of how our... I guess our standpoint, our new standpoint got out that we were going to retract our letter of support. So that, that, that's how my name kind of got thrown out there because I was speaking on behalf of the nation in terms of what we were seeing and what we weren't seeing. Because what we were seeing is something that would look ceremonial on paper as opposed to probably what is actually there at the site, right? Because when you're only seeing so much on one paper, as opposed to the 130-page report, you can only make you can make certain interpre- interpretations from that one page that are probably wrong when you're not getting all the information. So it, it's kind of tough to to say or to act as a community and say this is a ceremonial site when you're only given a page of information. Right. Yeah. So it's this control of knowledge. Uh, who able, who's able to control the story? Who's able to control the discourse? Because you can't be entirely sure that you're speaking. You can't speak with a great authority because you don't have all the information that other people have that you're Basically. speaking with. Yeah. yeah. It's very complicated. So if this land weren't owned already by EPCOR or even, I guess, if this land is owned by EPCOR, what would one ideally want to see with a site of this kind of historical and cultural value? What would we want to see having happened to that? Uh, at this site, nothing. Just kind of leave it as it is, or if anything, full-scale archaeological mi- mitigation to where we find out exactly what's there. If if there is more under 1.5 meters, let's see what it is, and if it, if it is, I guess, uh, rare for Alberta archaeology, which some people think that there could be rare finds. It's tough to say. Right. So when you say nothing happened, you mean like EPCOR should not be going any further yeah, with their there, yeah, it, it should indus- it industry. should just be kept how it is. No solar farm. No, that's you know that's my own personal view. Right. And then these these projects are complicated because they're uh, green energy projects. People want to see it, you know, an, a transformation in energy systems. Other people don't want to see a transformation in energy systems. So you already have these, you know, competing interests and anxieties. And then something like this happens, and it complicates. Uh, it complicates our understanding of how we're going to go about making transition and doing so quickly. And it, and it, and it asks us to reflect and say, okay, how are we going to do this differently or better than the way we put in the existing oil infrastructures and energy infrastructures that are clearly so unjust, the injustices of which are, um, you know, rampantly visible to us all. I think even those people who don't want to uh, necessarily see what's in front of them. And so how do we how do we do better? How do we do differently with these kinds of green energy projects that still go in on the land? This is the thing people f- seem to forget, right? That even if it's a green energy project, you know, solar panels still require mining somewhere, maybe not in the oil sense, but somewhere, some indigenous communities probably being disrupted because there's mining happening. And if not an indigenous community, then communities where their water is affected and where there's more, you know, um, gender sexual violence for girls and women and all sorts of things happen around mining sites. And in general... Um, all of these 
energy systems, old or new, have an impact. And so um, I think we need to think more meaningfully about those complexities. But also, how do you how do we make change quickly in a time of climate emergency? These are just some of the questions I've been thinking about. And I know it's a lot, but I am curious. What do you think about how these global issues of land use relate to the urgencies created by climate change? I could, I could only have ideas on how to solve the problems of, I guess, this um, this whole... I don't know what to call it. I wouldn't call it any any type of dispute or anything, just more of a communication breakdown between two companies who should be in, I guess, you know, have no communication breakdowns. They should have all information. For me, it also, I guess, how, what would fix it? We would change the Heritage Resource Act and... We would first take out the line that states that any artifacts found on crown land belongs to the crown, which that shouldn't, it shouldn't say that at all. So we could start with legislation. Mm. Legislation would be a good start. Of course, you know, I would say more indigenous consultation, but we, we do, I mean, there's a lot of that. I mean, there could be more, there, let's be honest, but in terms of green energy projects, mining projects, that affect communities. I mean, you think of projects in BC that have gone bad and they have affected an, an indigenous community and there was no consultation. You got to think why, you know, well, how come they didn't go consult the community that this river or this stream is going to affect because it's their drinking water. In that case study though, that I'm talking about, the company went behind everybody's back and kind of just didn't consult with the First Nation in BC. So you got to think, how can consultation be better? Do, are, are the companies listening to us, I guess, too? Do they really care about what we're saying? Or are they just kind of told by the government that you have to consult, so they're just putting on a consultation mask that they're going to take off when they go back to their corporate offices and just say, okay, we're done. And just do what they're going to do anyways, which is build a solar farm. Yeah, which is tricky, right? Because we're talking about companies that are consulting. So we're talking about the social good. We're talking about, um, you know, nation to nation relationships. And then we're expecting companies to weigh those issues against the profit margins of their stakeholders. And those things are hard to reconcile, right? They're hard to reconcile and we know where it usually lands, right? It usually lands on the side of the stakeholders. That's what's historically happened. And I think we have to, we have to try to think about how we do, how we do that differently, right? What are our, what are our measures? I don't have the answers either, but. Uh, <laughs> in, in, a, in a sense too, consultation is still a new thing, right? Um, it, it still has to evolve to something bigger and better. We can hope or it, it, it it's just can't all right it just goes to where it's nothing again to where nobody listens yeah you mentioned that there was quite a bit of consultation with Enoch actually like what does good consultation look like do you have you seen an example of good consultation uh not really I mean when when I think of consultation or with EPCOR they, they said oh we got such a great relationship with Enoch and all this well when I seen what they sent to us they sent a letter that is just basically a template to every First Nation and I'm like well if we have such a special relationship why are we just getting this you know basic template letter like step it up a little bit so I guess consultation could start with that like if you want to to say you have a special relationship come out to us and say 
you know, we want to do something on your your old land, acknowledge that too. So acknowledge the land which you're trying to, I guess, develop. That that would be consult a good consultation for me. Mm-hmm. I've I've not I cannot say I've been a part of good consultation yet, but um, I can say we I've been a part of consultation that's moving forward. So. It's looking bright in terms of uh, consultation with, Enoch, with um, from Enoch's perspective. Good. That's great. Yeah. On this particular project or on yeah, something and, else? And lots of projects. Yeah. yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah. Great. And, yeah, mostly, uh, I guess, City of Edmonton type of base projects like this kind of is, you know, there is the City of Edmonton involvement. So. Yeah, and I think that the City of Edmonton does work quite a bit with Enoch, if I understand, because you were raising these really important points that actually parts of Edmonton were, you know, not only originally uh, Enoch lands in the sense of, you know, traditional territories, but actually were part of the reserve system of Enoch at one time and then were, I don't know what the right word is. Well, well they say surrendered. They say surrendered, do they? Yeah. yeah. That's the so term? So I, I, okay. I don't know how you can define surrendered. Hmm. I mean, well, you can define surrendered as, okay, well... It, it makes it sound like we were, like, um, defending it for some, like, why we're, what are we defending it from? Mm. You know, it's, it almost yes. sounds like a, like, like a war term, like, oh, you know, we came in, we took them out and made them surrender it. Right. Yeah, maybe I'll, you know, I, I think a lot about energy transition and I think about what we need to to make uh, for a just energy transition. And there's lots of different ways to define that. Lots of different ways people talk about that. They talk about, you know, ensuring fair jobs for people in different uh, types of economies and that kind of thing. I think about a just energy transition as something where we reorganize the relationships that we have to one another and other species on the land. Right. And so I think a lot about the kinds of knowledges we need to be able to do that, that all of this is just simply symptomatic of how we've gotten to this place um, to start with. Right. When I say this place, I mean, like this place of climate change and a warming planet. Right. Um, And I guess I'm I'm just wondering, you know, if you have any ideas. I don't know if you're part of the youth climate movement. I didn't ask you about that or, you know, movements in your own community, obviously, or a leader in your own community. But do you see specific kinds of knowledges that need to be recognized and taken up that would be transformative for these types of relationships moving forward? Well, I guess just understanding of Indigenous knowledges, traditional knowledges that we do have, they do, I guess they are important and I believe they could help. That would be my main, my main thoughts on that is you could just, you can gather a lot more from Indigenous knowledge than what we're getting. I feel like we're just scratching the surface in what I guess mainstream Canada world knows like can get from indigenous knowledge, not just from North American indigenous people either, like South American, all all around the world indigenous people have knowledge that is untapped. And I believe that would it would I guess with their living in the earth for thousands and thousands of years, they have to have enough strategies that we can probably tap into. Um, We've interviewed a lot of people over the last couple of years, into the hundreds of people. And um, I like to end most interviews by, I ask everybody, and I usually do it at the end of the interview, about, you know, what they would like to see from the future. Not what they think will be in the future, but what they would like to see from a fair and just future where we've, you know, dealt with climate change and done it in a good way. Uh, That's that's tough. I mean, to even start thinking that far ahead about issues like that I don't know I don't know where to start I can just 
just hope that there's a better society for my daughter to grow up in. That's about all I can hope in terms of, you know, everybody can probably get on the same page in terms of climate just or on the climate issues just at that start would help. So hopefully let's just all agree that there's a problem with climate. That was something that's something I can hope for. Right. So, you know, out with the deniers, yeah, right? We have to basically, yeah, yeah. But let's just all agree that there's a problem and try to fix it f- for the sake of my daughters and the generation, <laughs> the generations under her, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. And then I think that this case study of the E.L. Smith Solar Farm is an interesting uh, look into how things can be done well or how mistakes can be made. Can we step back from them? Can we reconsider? Can we maybe let go of some of our ego and not be so concerned with sticking with the decision we first made? Are there ways within our you know, our decision-making practices and institutions to, to, to remake decisions and, and do them better when we realize they're, they're going awry? Because certainly you have uh, been part of a, a larger ecosystem of people doing very important serious work around E.L. Smith that have made a lot of uh, a lot of other people aware that this is an important ceremonial site and that we need to take seriously what it means to then think only about one tiny little thing which is reducing the carbon footprint and not think about all of the other ways in which you know the carbon footprint is impacted when you destroy ecosystems and um, wildlife corridors and Mm -hmm. you know historical sites right? right all of those things are interconnected yeah yeah well, I guess I, no, I'm glad that people are listening to what we have to say about certain areas. I mean, it, it's not something that's new, but it's, I guess, what's new is people are ju- not just listening, but they're kind of taking action. And we kind of see that happening here, too, where I, I feel like this project would have went through if Enoch didn't stand up and say, say something. So it's, it's good to see stuff like that happening. It's excellent. Yeah, it's really excellent. And I do feel that there are more people um, supportive of decisions like the decision that Enoch has made to withdraw its support. Yeah. And we really appreciate you coming out and talking today and explaining to listeners a bit more about the complexities of the situation. Well, I appreciate being invited. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Deep Energy Literacy Podcast. Be sure to visit justpowers.ca to learn more about these issues, access resources, and discover related content. Just Powers is made possible by support from the University of Alberta's Future Energy Systems Canada First Research Excellence Fund, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Cool Institute of Advanced Study, and Campus Saint-Jean. This series of the Deep Energy Literacy Podcast is produced by Jesse Beyer and engineered by Catlin W. Cusick.